listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone. I would reiterate Susan's comment about the podcast. I re-listened to my discussion with Peter Linneman from last week uh, on my AirPods working out day before yesterday, and it was a wonderful way to listen to the uh, huge amount of data that Peter and I poured through last Wednesday. We're going to focus on the hospitality industry today with my guest, Stephanie Linnartz. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining me today on the Walker webcast. You are clearly one of the most influential female executives in America and as group president, consumer operations, technology, and emerging businesses at Marriott, you are responsible for brand management, sales, marketing, revenue management, distribution, customer experience and innovation, information technology, and digital. I'm not exactly sure if there's anything else to do at Marriott other than all of those things, but suffice it to say, you've got a huge job that is responsible for not only the here and the now, but where Marriott and the hospitality industry are going tomorrow. So let's start by backing up for a moment. You grew up in a bar with four brothers. How did that childhood shape the corporate executive you are today? Well, thank you, Willie. And uh, first of all, thank you for having me today on your webcast. It's it's wonderful to be here. I very much enjoyed watching every many of your webcasts on Wednesday. But um, that's funny you say I, I grew up in a bar. To some extent, you're right about that. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my family owned and operated a small boutique hotel, the Phoenix Park Hotel on Capitol Hill, and a variety of different restaurants over the years, the most famous of which is the Dubliner Irish Restaurant and Par, which has been a Washington institution for decades. And so I did grow up working in the business, in the hotel and the restaurants, along with not just my four younger brothers, but I also have a younger sister. So we all started in the business at an early age. And in terms of shaping me as an, as an executive, when I think about the leadership skills I most admire and strive for and see in the leaders that um, I really look up to, I think about um, empathy, being a good listener, making tough decisions, even when you don't have all the information, uh, hard work. And I learned a lot of those watching my dad um, in his business over the years. I think most, the one I probably learned the most from him about was empathy and caring about the people that work in your business. And that was just so fundamental to who he was and how, how he ran his business. I should mention that I also learned a lot from my mother, you know, raising six kids is a full-time job too, 24 seven, just like the restaurant business and learn patience and perseverance and a lot of things from her as well. But when I think about growing up in a bar, as you said, one of the things that stands out the most to me is watching how much fun my dad had at work every day. I mean, he just loved it. You've got a bar on Capitol Hill and you've got all sorts of characters and interesting people coming in. And I just observed him loving what he did every day. And I said, that's what I want to do. Whatever I do, I want to enjoy it the way I see my dad enjoy his job. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. You talk about watching your father and the fun he had at work. 
the other piece to it is that it's a very dynamic setting being in both the hospitality industry as well as in the food and beverage industry. And clearly that underpins everything that you do every day. Talk for a moment about EQ, understanding people and human nature, because given the responsibilities you have at Marriott, it would seem to be that you learned a lot of skills growing up, having watched your father manage not only the good times, but also the bad times. Back to what I think are the most important leadership skills. I mean, we, you know, they really, many of them, most of them are tied to EQ. And it is about being able to have empathy for and, and listen to your team. And you make a great point, not just in, in good times and easy times, but in really difficult times. And certainly this year at the, in the hotel business and the restaurant business has been really, really tough. I know today we're going to talk mostly about Marriott um, and, and the, the broader industry, but I've seen my family go through a lot. At my my younger brother Gavin, your twin, um, he has a number of restaurants in Washington D.C. and they've gone through a lot as well. And I've seen um, him navigate that brilliantly by taking care of his people. It really gets down to taking care of the people that work in your business because in hospitality they're the ones who take care of the guests. So and the people that come into your establishment. So. I couldn't agree with you more that um, EQ is critical in all businesses, but particularly in the hospitality space. So most of our listeners won't won't understand what you just said about your brother Gavin being my twin. To, to those listening, um, three of Stephanie's brothers have worked with me at Walker and Dunlop, and uh, her fourth brother Gavin has a striking resemblance, or I have a striking resemblance to Gavin, and we've often joked that uh, Gavin and I were uh, twins separated at birth, and so that was where the twin comment comes from. But on that, Stephanie, just as you're talking about the challenges in this economy, you you also sit on the board of Home Depot. Talk for a moment, and I wasn't going to get to this until much later, but it, it works right now. Talk for a moment about the kind of the, the dichotomy or the changes where you're sitting there one moment looking at the numbers at Marriott and the next moment looking at the numbers at Home Depot and how challenging that has been for you to sort of look at one business that has been really struggling and another business that this pandemic has just made take off. Sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's like living in two different universes almost. So I joined the board of Home Depot a number of years ago. Absolutely terrific company. And when I share some of the numbers from Marriott, you'll see how they're in such sharp contrast to the numbers at Home Depot. But, you know, one day I'd be on a Marriott board meeting. We were talking to our board constantly throughout this crisis, as you can imagine. But on the flip side, the Home Depot board was meeting quite frequently, too, because they were having the opposite experience that we were having at Marriott in in travel and tourism, their sales were just going through the roof and their demand was incredible. As a matter of fact, um, in the second and third quarter of 2020, they had 25% comp store sales, which is really remarkable for a retailer of their size. Some of their best performance in 20 years, double digit increases in number of customers and transactions and average ticket size. And they had to pivot on a dime to do things like curbside pickup in a way that they've never done before and really scale up their digital channels incredibly. So it was, you know, it is just as it was really, really challenging for Home Depot to react to the incredible increase in demand. Um, I mean, I'd rather be on that side of the equation than where we were, but you know, they also spent well over a billion dollars on enhanced benefits and pay. You know, quick Home Depot story, as Marriott was going through the worst of it, I picked up the phone and called the CEO of Home Depot. And really remarkably, he and, and the head of IT for Home Depot set up a separate microsite where Marriott employees 
who were furloughed and out of work could apply for jobs at Home Depot because they had such a demand for um, needing additional employees. So it really was incredible for them to do that. But it, you're, you're absolutely right, Willie. It was like living in two different worlds for a while. So let me pull you back to the uh, the world that has numbers that aren't quite like Home Depot's today, the, the hospitality world. So as I mentioned previously, Dr. Peter Linderman was on the webcast last week, and his calculation is that um, occupancy, U.S. hotel occupancy in 2020 ended the year around 47%. His projection is that it will be flat in 2021, and that, but at the same time, while occupancy stays around that 50%, his projection is that RevPAR was down 50% in 2020 and is off only 20 to 30% in 2021. So given those numbers, how do they stack up to Marriott and Marriott's experience? And then more importantly, the projection for 2021, are we at sort of half occupancy throughout the year? Do you think the occupancy level numbers trend up and on RevPAR 20 to 30% off of where they were 2019, or do you think they improve even beyond that? So let's start with 2020 and just ground everyone a little bit on our performance, which is reflective of you know um, how the industry <laughs> suffered in 2020. So um, just as a quick quick context, so Marriott International bought Starwood Hotels and Resorts in 2016, becoming the world's largest hotel company. 30 brands and we're in 145 different countries. So there are some trends that differ by different regions of the world. But you know, Marriott's 93-year-old country, his uh, um, company, pardon me, has been around many years and has seen bad times before, but nothing like this. So as a little context, after 9-11, um, Marriott's worst quarter was negative 15%. Our red par was down 15%. During the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, our worst quarter was negative 25%. That was the worst. During this crisis, our worst quarter was down 85%. Um, there were months when we were down 90% with single-digit occupancy in our hotels. As a matter of fact, in the worst of it, 25% of our hotels were completely shuttered. So um, 2020 was, was so challenging and like nothing we'd ever seen. That said, from the lows of April, that was really the, the worst of it. Things did get better each month in 2020 and in each quarter. As a matter of fact, in Q3 of 2020, our worldwide red par was only down 66%. Um, and while still quite challenging, that was a 19 percentage point improvement from the quarter before. Um, and a lot of that was driven by leisure demand that we saw during the summer to drive two markets. And I should mention, by the way, that currently 95% of our hotels are open. It's closer to 98% in North America. So our hotels are back open now. But things kept getting better and better every month and every quarter. And I'd say they've really kind of plateaued now towards the latter part of the year as the virus, you've seen the virus come back in many countries, not just the United States. I should also mention that in terms of the recovery in 2020, the trajectory of the improvements really did differ around the world. China would be a good example of that. China is Marriott's second largest market. And they've been leading the recovery. As a matter of fact, in the third quarter of 2020, China's leisure bookings were higher than they were the year before. Now, part of that is because no one's leaving China, right? And they are not going to Thailand for vacations and things like that. 
But so China really did lead the recovery in 2020. So that's a little bit about um, uh, about 2020. We haven't released our fourth quarter results yet or our projections for 21. But you know we're looking at the same industry forecast everybody's looking at, whether it's STR, CBRE, PwC, et cetera, and seeing that 2021 will be better, but it will still be down. You know, in any in the 30s down in the 30s, depending on who you look at versus 2019. So it's going to get better, but it's going to be um, it's going to be a while and a little while until we get back to those to those peak numbers. So Stephanie, on that back to those peak numbers. So the occupancy level in 2019 in the U.S. was 66.3 percent. Projections are that we don't get back there until around 2023. So we got 21 and 22 to get through before we get back to that. Unlike the aviation industry, where putting an airplane up into the sky, if you don't have a load factor that's getting close to 70%, you're losing money on it. Where can the hospitality industry sort of turn a profit, not to the levels previously, but I mean, is it a is it a 50% occupancy number? Is it a 60% occupancy number? What's the sort of back of the envelope in your industry that says you get to that and we can, we're not tonning it like we were in 2019. And you may want to debate with me about whether you were tonning it in 2019. But the point being is 66.3% was a very healthy hospitality market in 2019. And we don't expect to get back there for some time. Where do we settle in between here and there? Yeah, I mean, to, to your first question, if I'm understanding it correctly, kind of like what's the break even for occupancy? When do you start to make money in the hotel business? And that's there's not a straightforward answer to that. I mean, rough back of the envelope, depend, if it's a select service hotel, I'd say you start breaking even, covering your operating cost at 35, 40% occupancy, higher on um, 50%, 40s, 50s, if you're a full service hotel. Of course, it depends on what kind of ADR you're getting, right? What kind of rate you're getting. And if that's in normal pricing situations, you know, things the rates can be depressed in these extraordinary times. So um, that's kind of, you know, back of the envelope, a rough break even. I'm hopeful that we'll get back to higher levels before 2023. But the honest answer is nobody knows. I can tell you we are, I believe there's tremendous pent-up demand for travel, both leisure and business. And we're hearing that from our customers from our Marriott Bonvoy loyalty members, from our top corporate accounts. So there's no doubt it will take a while to recover. And you know the way I see it, it will be domestic leisure first, short haul trips, you know, medium regional borders will open up with international business and big group meeting business coming back last. But I hope it's before 2023, but it certainly won't be, um, it certainly won't be this year. I want to dive into rates and group travel and com- conventions and all that in a moment. But before we move to sort of the future and what you're seeing coming down the, the road, I want to close off on the the pandemic for a moment and talk about the video that your CEO, Arnie Sorensen, put out to all married employees back in the in the depths of the pandemic. And when I was in business school, there was a case study on Jim Burke at Johnson and Johnson when they did the Tylenol recall. And it was the seminal case study on crisis management. And since 1982, when that case study was written, if you want to figure out how to be transparent with your clients and pull medicine off the shelf, create a tamper-proof seal and get back into business and have your sales rebound dramatically, that's the seminal case study. I think that Arnie's video in the depths of the pandemic will be viewed similar to Jim Burke's case study at J&J of how to effectively communicate 
crisis management and difficult times in corporate America. You had a huge role in both the scripting of that and the production of it. First, do you believe, do you agree with me that it's going to be a seminal video, if you will? And second of all, can you give us a little bit of insight as it relates to what you all were trying to accomplish and why it was so impactful? Sure, absolutely. I agree with you. It was a remarkable video and that's all Arnie. That's, you know, all Arnie. He's just, he's a tremendous CEO, a tremendous leader. And um, that video that went, I think over a million people have seen it on YouTube, it gives the outside world a little peek of what we get to see with Arnie every day. Um, but what I think was so remarkable about that video and, and why it touched you in the way it did, Willie, is I think be just if you step back and think about it. And by the way, I should, for those who didn't see it, I should mention something important about this video is Arnie um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in late 19. And when he was in the middle of his treatment, we did the video and he was bald. Um, he's doing great, by the way. He's in great health now. But he um, was bald. And some people said, well, do you want to do a video when you're bald and you, you know, you're not looking at your best? And he, he said yes. And I think that's the right decision because he doesn't do memos to, his, to the employees for the most part. He does videos and he gets out on the road and he talks to people. So a memo just wouldn't be Arnie. So he did the video, but it was kind of striking to see him look that way. And again, I, I know you saw it and I'm sure many of your listeners did. But what was ext extraordinary about that video, and I agree, is that he was open and honest and transparent, right? First of all, he told everybody exactly what was going on with our business. Very straightforward about that. And he was very straightforward about the really tough decisions that we have to make. As um, you know, we have 750,000 employees at Marriott International. 96% of them work at a hotel. Hundreds of thousands of employees were either furloughed or put on reduced work weeks. 70% of corporate headquarters was furloughed. So he was very honest about the measures that we needed to take. Um, he talked about how the fact that Mr. Marriott and Arnie both took zero salary in 2020. Um, his direct reports, we took a 50% salary cut, as, as we all should have. And But the best part about the video is he ended with hope. I mentioned China leading the recovery. Even in March, China was starting to show green shoots. And he highlighted that we're going to get through this. And China is an example of when you get the virus under control, demand comes back, people love travel. And so I really think he did a remarkable job in that video of showing transparency, honesty, emotion, and most importantly, hope. That was the best part of it. So I thought it was a remarkable way to communicate. And it's just one example, honestly, just one example of how he navigated this crisis. And I, I feel the leadership team at Marriott, I, I was honored to work with all of them. Of course, Arnie at the top of the list, but Mr. Marriott and my peers as well. It was a it was an important piece for, for him to get out so early in the crisis too. So thank you for, thank you for recognizing that and, and noticing it. Yeah. But on that, just as it relates to the 50% pay cut that you and other senior executives took, you know, during the great financial crisis, you're in the banking sector, banks messed up. Banks had a big role in us getting into a financial crisis. They were losing lots of money. And so pay cuts, firing, all that kind of stuff. You totally got that. And anyone who would kind of push back on that, you're sort of like, what do you, what, what, what memo did, didn't you read? But you guys didn't bring the pandemic and probably 2020 has been more work for you and your colleagues than ever before. How do you sell a 50% pay cut that you guys didn't ask for, do anything to bring about and are working harder than you've ever worked? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Willie, I think it's 100% appropriate. I mean, look what our company was going through, you know, hundreds of thousands of job losses. Um, 
many people um, on with that were furloughed had a more significant pay cut than we did, right? I mean, so it was just completely appropriate. And it, it gets back to a core part of Marriott's culture, which is taking care of our associates. You, know, you take care of the associate, the associate takes care of the customer, the customer comes back again and again. And when your employees are your most important asset, that's what you do. One quick story on that, in addition to um, retailers like Home Depot and we had people like CVS and Kroger also help us um, place employees. But one of my favorite stories from the pandemic, and it's an example of from crisis comes creativity, is you know we have 23 call centers around the world. Um, our largest one in Omaha, Nebraska. No one was calling us to make hotel reservations. At the same time, the state of New York was couldn't keep up with their unemployment claims. It was out of control and they couldn't keep up with it. So we, with the help of Deloitte in between, worked with the state of New York, trained our agents in Omaha on the software to process unemployment checks for the state of, of New York. We saved 700 jobs. They, they were not furloughed at all during the pandemic. Um, they worked the whole time. We helped um, thousands of people in New York get their unemployment checks, desperately needed unemployment checks, and it was a win-win. And it was an example, actually, uh, speaking of crisis creating creativity or necessity being the mother of invention, you know, we have started thinking maybe this could be a new business for us, you know, that we could take to and, and do after the pandemic. But it was just an example, of, I think, the way Marriott handled this. I mean, there's so many stories of, you know, we did a big program, Rooms for Responders. We gave free hotel rooms to healthcare workers, gave food and linen to hospitals. I mean, as hard as 2020 was, Willie, it was our culture was shining through the whole time. And back to your original question on pay cuts, that's our culture. That's what we should have done. And it was completely appropriate. So just talking about, first of all, I can only imagine someone who was calling, filing for unemployment benefits, couldn't believe the quality of service they got by the luck of going into a Marriott-run call center in Nebraska rather than going to some of the, some of the other state-run uh, call centers. Um, so that's pretty neat to hear. You're talking about employment numbers. So the hospitality sector travel and leisure lost by far the most jobs during the pandemic down 8.3 million. But then as you mentioned previously, from April through November, you added back almost 5 million jobs, but that's still a loss of 3.4 million jobs in the hospital travel and leisure sectors. And that is by far the most jobs lost. As you look at the resurgence in demand, how challenging is going to be to both find and train labor? And does this give you the opportunity to think about doing things differently as you rehire those people? Yeah, let's start a little bit with, uh, you know, talking about the numbers. You're right. They're pretty dramatic. And from a global perspective, if you look at what the World Travel and Tourism Council put out, globally, there'll be about over 121 million jobs lost and over 3.4 trillion in global GDP. Um, and uh, some of the numbers you were quoting, I know, were for part of the year, but the full year numbers in North America will be closer to 14 million jobs lost uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so the job loss has been pretty incredible. And I think it's important to note something that doesn't get talked about as much as I think it should be talked about is that there's very high participation of women, minorities, and youth in the travel and tourism sector. As a matter of fact, two times in terms of um, as many youth work in our sector. And so the, um, the other interesting thing about travel and tourism is that 83% of the businesses in travel are small businesses, 60% owned by women. 
So I think that when we think about the job loss and the economic impact of this pandemic, particularly in my industry, this virus is potentially erasing years of economic progress that women have made and I think is threatening to leave some long lasting uh, damage. As a matter of fact, McKinsey just put out their women in workplace study for 2020 and um, said that this could set women back half a decade and they're calling it perhaps the first female recession. So I think there's some underlying trends. As a matter of fact, I, you and I were talking about this the other day when the job reports came out on um, Friday, the December job reports, uh, there was 140,000 jobs lost, net all women, negative 156,000 for women, plus 16,000 for men. Now men of course lost jobs too. Um, there was, there's churn in those numbers. So on the job loss front, I do think it's important to note and underscore who's being most impacted. And I think that governments can and absolutely must recognize that travel and tourism is a source of growth. It is a mechanism to further enhance equality and to reduce poverty. So I think on you know, the job loss front, the pretty remarkable. But now to move forward, we need to get our hotels open and staff up again. That's what we're focused on now is getting people back to work. Essentially and the same. Is it essentially the same playbook, Stephanie, or are there any things that you're doing differently? So previously there was a doorman at the, at the Marriott downtown, wherever. And you're saying, you know what, we don't need to put that person back in that job. We're going to use automation or actually given the change in the pandemic of what customers want, we're going to add here and subtract there. Has, has there been any change in the dynamic of hospitality yeah. given the pandemic? It, 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 I mean, Nothing too terribly significant. I will say there's been the adoption of technology has been supercharged, particularly things like mobile check-in and check-out and using your phone as a key. We've really supercharged those efforts. I don't think it's at the point yet where it's going to mean we're going to have you know fewer front desk associates checking people in or fewer doormen. But we do need to be conscious of it's always a balancing act of you know, adding costs back to our hotels. As you know, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, Marriott owns very few of our hotels. We need to be conscious of the cost pressure our owners and franchisees are under and be very thoughtful as we bring costs back into the business. At the same time, Willie, as people start coming back to our hotels, and if you're paying $600 a night to stay at a Ritz-Carlton, you expect us to have our brand standards there, right? You expect the restaurants to be open and you expect the spa to be open and your room to be cleaned every night, et cetera. So it's going to be a balancing act between customers' expectations and, and rightfully so, their, their demands um, and how we bring costs back into the business. But I, I don't think there's any major fundamental shift yet in automation of services yet. I mean, that, you know, that may come over time, but I don't think the pandemic, at least from my lens, has supercharged anything significantly. So Scott McCartney, who is uh, an author of the Wall Street Journal's The Middle Seat, which focuses on travel and leisure, wrote last week that hotels and prime destinations will seem maddeningly expensive as we get out of the pandemic and people start to travel around the country. First of all, were you able over the Christmas holidays to charge maddeningly expensive rates anywhere across the country? And then second of all, um, what's your suggestion to those listening as it relates to, we want to go on a summer vacation in June and uh, I haven't booked it yet because I'm afraid that we'll still be in lockdown. 
Yeah, no, I mean, throughout this whole thing, we've tried to maintain a disciplined approach to pricing during the year. Um, but, you know, we know that the, the steep drop in demand wasn't a pricing problem, wasn't a pricing related problem. So slashing pricing was not the way to create demand. Um, so where possible on the pricing front, we've tried to maintain COVID, pre-COVID level pricing where we can. I'll give you an example of that and, and then I'll, I'll answer your question on the resort front. Every year we price our corporate accounts, you know, the Deloitte's, Accenture's, McKinsey, BCG, et cetera. They get pricing at our hotels for the year. And what they all agreed to do or most of them to do was just to roll over the pricing from 2020 to 21, right? Like not go through that whole process again. So just to illustrate the point that we're trying to maintain integrity in our pricing and how we think about this. But in high demand markets, mountains, uh, you know, ski resorts, uh, beaches, et cetera, you know, we've been able to charge like we did pre the pandemic, the higher rates. I mean, um, we have limited and perishable inventory. So that's how revenue management works. And when there's high demand, you're able to charge higher rates. Uh, and th so that that's pretty much the same as it was before at the Ritz-Carlton Bachelor Gulch is an example near home. Other yeah. markets where things really fell off, um, you know, it was we had to lower our rates because it's supply, demand, competitive actions. But um, I, I'd say, again, trying to be disciplined in your pricing during something like this is very important. So what's your take on returning to the office and returning to travel? Because there are plenty of, of differing opinions on a return to the office that some people say we're in remote work forever and people are never going to get back to the same office environment we knew. And there are also a lot of people who say that that last minute trip to go have a business meeting and flying from New York to LA and spending the night at one of your hotels um, is a thing of the past and that people will get on Zoom and have that, that, that meeting virtually rather than booking the last minute travel ticket and the last minute hotel, which obviously are a huge component of the profits for both the airlines as well as the hotel industry. Do you think that comes back or do you think that's a thing of the past? You know, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm very um, bullish on the demand for travel and business travel specifically is what you're talking about. I think it would be naive to say there won't be any change to the way people work and travel after COVID-19. Uh, and you think about it, I mean, it was the great worldwide experiment on working from home and, and everyone knows how to use Zoom and Teams now. So to say that there'll be no impact, I think would be naive. That being said, I do think business travel will come back too maybe not as quite as strong and maybe not as fast. But I know I've heard you really say this and other people that, you know, when will you start traveling again as soon as my competitor does, right? You know, and that salesperson's there showing the, you know, showing the love and the desire to get the business that, you know, you're going to be right there behind him, right? Or, or you'll be probably be there first knowing you. They'll be the right there behind you. But so that kind of business, I think, will definitely come back. Other more internal meetings and things like that may be a little bit slower, right? So I think it depends on what type of business travel. But we talk to our top 10 accounts all the time, as you can imagine. So again, Deloitte, Accenture, IBM, McKinsey, Microsoft, I, I could go on. And I think to just zoom out for a second, none of them have yet formally revised their travel policies to allow business travel. Most of them, all of them are really in a place where it's client requested only, business critical but they are all working on it. First, they're working on getting people back to their offices, to your point, getting people back to the office and then business travel will follow from there. Again, I, I go back to China a lot as an example because when the virus gets under control or when the vaccine gets rolled out even more importantly, business comes back. Business travel, 
meetings, convention, they all came back in China, a little bit less than the year before, but pretty strong. So I do believe that business travel will come back. It's worth noting, most people don't know this, that leisure travel, though, as a segment is actually twice as big as business travel and growing at a faster rate. That is important to keep in mind when you think about a company like ours that's also about 500 resorts. So the pie of travel is quite large. Business is significant. To your point, it's quite profitable. That's who's buying the first class seats and the business class seats on the airlines. But I think business travel will come back. It will just be towards the, you know, the middle to latter part of this year is when we'll start to start to see some more travel. Talk about the difference between leisure travel, business travel, and then group travel. Because clearly convention hotels, there are no conventions going on right now. And I saw a stat this morning from STR where in January of last year on group bookings, there were 6.9 million group bookings in the United States in January of, of 2020. That dropped down to a low of 486,000 in April and had recovered on group bookings back to 1.4 million by October. But still, we're talking about 6.9 million down to 1.4 million. What's your sense on conventions and group bookings for 2021 and when your big convention hotels start to see people taking space? Yeah, I think that convention and group business will will come back um, on the later side. Although I will say when we look at what we have group business we have on the books for the latter part of this year, um, uh, most of our meetings are, are holding strong. So I think we'll see it come back, um, but slowly. One thing we're seeing a lot of really is hybrid meetings is where you're seeing people hold meetings. I think we'll see this come back first is they'll have maybe half the people there live or a quarter of the people live and then use technology to Zoom in or Microsoft Teams, whatever technology they use to participate in the meeting. So I think we'll see it will be towards the latter part of the recovery where we'll see groups and conventions come back in full force. In the interim, I think we'll start seeing more and more hybrid meetings. But Willie, it really does all come down to the vaccine, in my opinion. When we poll our meeting planners and when we talk to them, um, they all say when the, we need the vaccine, right? The vaccine is when we're going to feel really confident having meetings. As a matter of fact, we polled our top meeting planners. 96% of them said, um, as it related to the vaccine and booking groups again, that it was either a moderate factor or a significant factor. As a matter of fact, 60% of meeting planners said having a vaccine rolled out was a significant factor in booking a group meeting. I think one of the key things is when we get, I don't know, 30, 40% of the most vulnerable people get the vaccine, that's going to be a turning point too. It doesn't have to be 100%, I don't think, to see people start traveling and booking meetings. I think when we get to that tipping point of the most vulnerable, we'll start to see the tide turn. So I've got two significant Walker and Dunlop events in 2021, our annual summer conference in Sun Valley, which is in July, and then our all company meeting, which is at your newly redone Sheridan right here in downtown Denver in October. Give me your odds that I'm able to pull off the Walker and Dunlop summer conference in July, and then the odds for me pulling off the Walker and Dunlop all company meeting in October. I think you'll be able to do it. I do. I think we're going to get on um, our act together with the vaccine and get it rolled out. And I think by this summer, you'll be able to have your meetings. I really do. I'm honestly really bullish about it. And again, now maybe you'll have a few people that don't want to make the trip, right? And maybe you use technology to zoom them in. That could happen. 
but I think the bulk of the people will be able to attend your meeting. And I think those who can't, for some reason, you can use technology to include them. These hybrid meetings are working out quite well. Um, I mean, they're not exactly the same as having everybody there live, of course. So I think you'll be able to do it. Great. If you think about someone showing up at one of your properties today, I was reading an article about airline capacity in the United States and the fact that they're, all the major airlines are now flying bigger planes on domestic routes because they're not doing international. So the the number of triple sevens flying in the United States last January was there were 450 flights in this January, there are 1100 flights on triple sevens in, in the United States. So if you happen to be on one of those and you're sitting in first class on triple seven, it's a lot nicer than first class in a 737. If I show up at one of your properties today, am I, uh, is, is, a, is a junior suite a junior suite? Or um, am I going to find my way to a nicer room just because you guys are doing sort of capacity management and making sure that you're getting people into the capacity you have? Yeah, I mean, I'd say on average, there's a higher percentage of our guests who are getting and experiencing upgrades because we have more suites and upgrades to give, um, given the situation. And of course, we always focus on our Marriott Bonvoy elites as the first to get those upgrades. So I think we are seeing a higher percentage, but it's a little bit tricky. In a lot of our hotels, we kind of have an artificial restriction on upgrades to the junior suite because a hotel may have an entire wing closed or three floors closed either because they have to to save money or the government is restrictions on the, the size of the property in terms of how many rooms they can have open. So I think that um, in some markets, um, in some markets back are very busy. New Year's week in Fort Lauderdale was at 80%. Um, Miami was at 85%. So, you know, it's kind of the same situation with upgrades and suites in that situation as it was pre-COVID. So, but on average, yes, a higher percentage of our guests are probably getting upgraded, particularly our Marriott Bonvoy members, uh, because there's just more capacity. And talk about Bonvoy for a moment, because clearly one of the main reasons why operators choose Marriott to manage their hotels for them is your rewards program and, and, and if you will, driving customers to those hotels. I've been Bonvoy Elite for quite some time, and I'm pretty sure I'm not qualifying for Bonvoy Elite from my travel in 2020, given I've spent a fraction of the number of nights in a hotel this year than I typically would. What are you doing with people as it relates to elite status? And, I, and then I want to take that from what are you doing with people to how, how important is it that you get the miles back and going and using that as an inducement for people to travel and stay at your hotels? Absolutely. Um, Marriott Bonvoy really is the cornerstone of our consumer strategy. We have 145 million Marriott Bonvoy members now since we merged Marriott Rewards and SPG a few years ago. And they're and our most important customers. As it relates to our elites, of course, you can't earn. It's very hard to earn elite status in 2020 when you're not traveling. So we did a bunch of things. Cut the number of nights that are required to become elite, we allowed people to get an extension and carry their status over for an extra year. We extended points expiration for our elites. Um, our top elites, as you know, get things like free sweet night awards. We extended those. So we did a lot of things to say, you know, we we understand the situation and we're going to extend your status um, into 21 or into 22. We also did a lot of things for our Marriott Bonvoy members in terms of earning points to your question on that front. You know, you may not be traveling, but our most loyal Marriott Bonvoy members, many of them have our co-brand credit card. So we did things like 10 times points on gas and groceries. You may not be staying in hotels, but you're buying gas and groceries. So how can we give you 
extra points for that. Um, you know, we did a lot of things for our elites to, to make sure they understood how valuable they were to us. So yeah, Marriott Bonvoy really is the backbone of our strategy, but kind of zooming out. And it's also, I often think of Marriott Bonvoy, it's the vessel for our 30 brands. The key to Marriott Bonvoy is great hotel brands. If you don't have great hotel brands, who wants to be a Marriott Bonvoy, right? And who wants to get our credit card for that matter? So you talk about brands. Let me just jump in here for two yeah. seconds. You talk about brands and you guys, as you mentioned previously, acquired Starwood. You now have 30 brands. I went and looked and GM only has 10 car brands. Do you really need 30 brands or does this reduction in usage allow you to kind of take a look at what is really needed by the consumer and winnow those brands down? Or do you actually think it goes the other way and that they're actually 45 brands because there's some millennial population that will like some brand that's exactly to what he or she uh, would like? Yeah, I mean, we got to 30 brands really by buying Starwood got us to 30. They had 11 brands. So we added them to our 19 brands. So I don't think we have too many brands. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we buy or start another brand because the key, uh, and this was the, the really the impetus for the Starwood purchase in many ways, in today's day and age, size, scale, choice, it all matters. Um, and so the more brands and choices we have for consumers, the, the more attractive Marriott Bonvoy is. And um, so I think that in all those brands, by the way, those 11 Starwood brands that we bought, all the investment had been already put into setting them up. They had loyal customers. It's not like we started 11 new brands. We purchased existing brands that had consumer loyalty. So I, the other reason I think having more brands, depth and choice and size and scale matters is investing in technology. I mean, there's digital players in travel now, Airbnb, you know, we need to have size and scale to invest in technology also. You know, that's why it matters if you're bigger now in terms of your investment capacity. So I don't think 30 brands is too many. And as a matter of fact, we're adding more offerings to our customers, even outside of hotels on with a new business we launched last year, Homes and Villas by Marriott International. Next year, Ritz-Carlton Yachts will sail. Their first ship will sail next year. It's already sold out with three more ships under construction. So again, I think about growing brands and offerings for our customers, not the other way around. If you need anyone to trial run one of those Ritz-Carlton yacht experiences, please feel free to call me up and ask me if you want some consumer feedback on that. Um, so you talked about Airbnb, Stephanie. I look back at an interview that David Rubenstein did with uh, Chris Nassetta and Arnie back in 2014. And David's first question at the Economic Club of Washington to Chris and Arnie was, uh, there's this company called Airbnb and this guy, Brian Chesky, and everyone's talking about this and kind of sharing homes and this and that. What do you think? And, and Chris, not Arnie, but Chris sat there and said, I don't think it's going to be that disruptive to either of my business or Arnie's business. I'm not that worried. And as you know, at the end of 2020, Airbnb went public at a market cap of $83 billion, which is more than Hilton and Marriott combined. So I guess the question is, you still not worried about Airbnb? Well, let me start by first saying, I think that Airbnb really has built an admirable platform. And I think it's great to see them become a public company. Marriott's been a public company since 1953. Airbnb is still just one player in a larger travel um, and hospitality industry. You know, they are, and right now they're very focused on one sliver, home rentals and rooms within homes. Before the pandemic, they were getting more into hotels and experiences. And they have stated, at least for now, 
they're doubling down on their core business in home rentals. Um, so, and by the way, home rentals have been around for a long time. I know Airbnb gets a lot of the press, but there's others in this space, VRBO, booking.com. Um, so again, I, I, I admire the, the platform that they've built. I'll let investors comment on their market cap uh, versus me, me doing that. You know, the reason we got into the business, I've always believed that this is a segment of the business we should play in in the right way. So we launched Homes and Villas by Marriott International last year. It is relatively small compared to our hotel business. And the reason we did it is we saw a gap with Airbnb and the other players. Just overwhelming amount of choice, no branding, no curation. And we said, we want to play in the premium and luxury part of this segment. We're only going to do business with professionally managed homes. So you have to be managed by what's called an HMC, a home management company, kind of like what we do for hotels. So we will only, and we have very, very strict standards. You have to have full home, uh, certain amenities, design aesthetic, washer dryer, et cetera. The best part about our offering that, that is though you can earn and burn Marriott Bonvoy points. And I should note that 95% of the people staying in our homes are Marriott Bonvoy members. And it's really part of, again, the flywheel and the ecosystem of being part of our travel platform. I think we have hands down the best hotel brands in the industry now, uh, and we have them at all price points, right? People stay at Ritz-Carlton's for certain stay occasions, and the same guests will stay at a courtyard for their, their kid's soccer tournament, right? The same guests. Well, those same guests, human beings, sometimes want to rent a home. And now we believe with the offering of home rentals, I mean, why would you ever join another hotel loyalty program if you can give us all your business and leisure travel for hotels and then earn points to run a home in Tuscany, right? So I think that our homes and villas business is, while relatively small, I should note we started with 2,000 homes and we're up to something like 25,000. So again, it will always be small compared to Airbnb, but it will be a critical um, part of the Marriott Bonvoy value proposition. So um, again, Airbnb, I think, admirable platform. And why'd you start that business in Europe? Just real quick. Why Europe versus the US? Was there something unique about the way that people have either interest in it or the, the leasing laws that made it so that Europe, because I know you started in four European countries and you're not in the States with it yet. Our pilot was in Europe. You're absolutely right about that. But then we launched the business in the US, Europe and the Caribbean. Okay. So now it. we're in those three places. Yep. Okay. So my final question to you, if we think forward, Stephanie, to five years from now, and the pandemic is hopefully nothing more than an unfortunate memory to most of us and to those people who have lost loved ones, obviously far more significant in their memory. But thinking as it relates to the travel and leisure industry and our hospitality experience, I'm going to go check into a Marriott Hotel January of 2026. What's going to be different about my experience? I think that there will be um, a continued use of technology. That'll probably be the biggest thing. I think you'll see more people doing things like mobile check-in and mobile check-out. The hotel industry was kind of behind the airline industry in that regard. So I think there'll be a more aggressive adoption of technology in our hotels will be the most fundamental change that you'll see. Um, I think we will all get better at using data to personalize the guest experience. I think every year we'll get, you know, data is the new oil. And we have so much data on our customers used appropriately with all the privacy rules being followed. I think you'll see enhanced personalization and customization in our hotels going forward. But I can promise you one thing that won't change 
And that is the warm welcome that you get when you come to our hotels, the way we treat our guests, the first class hospitality that we provide. Um, that will um, that will be the same, if not get better by 2026. And will the experience when I go resort location, will there be more things to do? Because as I think about the competitive landscape of you versus an Airbnb, if I am just going for the four walls and nice space, do I want to sit in a suite in one of your beautiful hotels uh, or do I want to be in a, in a home? That's a good trade-off. But if you're adding into that, the great pool, the great experience, the ability to go on a horseback ride on the beach or whatever the case might be, that might be an additional pull. So do you think there's added services that come to destination for vacations? Absolutely. Um, I don't want to lose you before I say this, but we absolutely, we've started a whole tours and activities business that where you can also earn and burn Bonvoy points. I should note that Marriott's a lot more than four walls. We are actually the largest spa operator in the world, one of the largest restaurant operators. We've launched an all-inclusive business that will grow in the years ahead. So we will continue to have more offerings in our resort and destinations, tours, activities, spa, golf, all sorts of different offerings. You'll just see that continue to grow um, in the future. Well, Stephanie, it has been a real pleasure, and I'm deeply thankful to you for spending an hour with me to talk about the hospitality industry. Congratulations on all you have done at Marriott. Congratulations on getting through an extremely challenging year. Please give Arnie my best and my best to your wonderful family and to uh, Brendan and Colin. Let's keep on cranking, buddies. Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) Have a great day. To everybody else on the webcast, have a terrific uh, next two weeks. We'll see you back when we have John Firmer from Walmart on to talk about the retail industry uh, in two weeks. Thanks and have a great day.